Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You are listening to Notion Capital Podcast FM, the voice of European enterprise tech. Next up is our show, Go to Market Heroes, with Andy and his amazing guests. And talking of being a hero... Hello and welcome back to Go to Market Heroes. I'm Paul Papadimitriou, your host at large, but I am with the one and only and true host, Andy Lever. But before we jump into the episode, we jump into the episode and not into the guest, <laughs> one question we haven't resolved, Andy. You are an operating partner at Notion Capital. We all know this. You started, I think, in 2020, and we're in 2021. Can you tell us in a few sentences what you've done before? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question, Paul. Thank you. So in that title, Operating Partner, there's kind of two sides to it. One is the operating, which is where I come from. So started my early career in the U.S., did uh, Seattle for five years and did New York for five years between Microsoft and GE. And it was GE that actually sent me down to Silicon Valley and said, who are all these crazy Californians that keep knocking on our door? <laughs> and that's when I discovered the whole of the valley and my eyes were open. So I've been pretty fortunate to go through five scale-up and companies that ultimately IPO'd, Ariba, Success Factors, Bizarre Voice, Workday, and most recently Hortonworks. And it was Hortonworks where I started to meet all these really super talented founders and tech people. And I thought, hey, I think tech is like, reaching a whole new level. We've kind of been through the SaaS revolution, the cloud revolution, the data revolution was starting. And and that's where I started investing. I'd known Notion, by the way, since really early days, like 2012. And it just seemed to come together, kind of my operating background that I deploy with Notion companies, and then my own kind of personal investing background that I use with Notion companies as well. So it all kind of came together in a good way. As you say, that was about 15 months ago. So still relatively new. Just pre-pandemic, actually. <laughs> Great timing, great timing right there. And that also explains, and we'll go to the guest now, but that also explains probably actually why this concept for this podcast, because that's truly what you're fascinated about. So tell us, who is our hero today? Who did you invite today with us? Well, I am thrilled that we have Jason Corsella with us here today. So as a quick intro, let me tell you why Jason's going to be a great guest, okay? So Jason's got an interesting background. I mean, I cherry-picked his background here. There's more than this, and we'll get into it. But from Flextronics, through Yankee Group, through Cornerstone, to his own fund, Acadian, he's kind of had a few twists and turns in his career. He's someone that I always turn to when I want advice, particularly around what's going on in HR, HR tech, and generally around people issues. So he's been a, a great advisor to me. And somebody that I bumped into many times in my career. So you just heard my background. And I think randomly, we probably met each other more times in airports than anywhere else if I, <laughs> I kind of cast my mind. So yeah, it's been interesting. But yeah, thrilled that Jason could join us. Welcome to the show, Jason. Andy, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me and Paul for having me as well. I'd love to start with, you know, I'm always intrigued how people got into their job, you know, because you've got so many different ways you've taken your career. Was there a theme? Was this plan? Was it accident? How did all this come about? Andy, my career has been fairly non-obvious and not necessarily by design. I'll try to give you the short version here, which is, you know, I graduated from college way back in 1995 and didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do and stumbled into this company called Nancy Electronics that was essentially acquired by Flextronics. So Long story short, I you know I grew up in the valley. I don't reside in the valley today, but you know I grew up in the valley when it was 
orchards and the biggest employer at the time was IBM. They in fact had a nine hole golf course on their on their property. I'm dating myself a little bit here, but um, I always wanted to get into to tech and technology growing up in the Valley. So I fell into kind of outsourced manufacturing as my first entree into, into tech, transitioned that into an early stage software career back in, I guess, in, in 2000 at the, the height of the bubble. And over the years, evolved into different kind of roles. I was an analyst, as you mentioned, at Yankee Group. And that was really my first entree into HR tech and work tech. So I didn't really know much about it back in, call it 2004. But what I did see is this kind of shift towards cloud computing, software as a service. And that was really what excited me. And so long story short, here we are kind of, you know, almost 15 plus years later, uh, I've gone from being an analyst to being a management consultant to being an operator at a company called Cornerstone On Demand. And I've really enjoyed the software world. I've really enjoyed HR tech. And, you know, half of this career over the last 15 years has been at Cornerstone On Demand. I joined Cornerstone in 2011. We were $40 million in trailing ARR. The company had just gone public the quarter I joined, so not necessarily your typical publicly traded IPO that you see these days. But it was a tremendous ride. Over seven years, we took it from $40 million in ARR to about a half a billion in ARR. Now the company's approaching about a billion in ARR. And it's been a great journey for myself, you know, lucky to stumble in SaaS, lucky to stumble into work tech and HR tech. And I still think we're still relatively early days in this world. And so I wake up every day excited to meet new companies, as I'm sure you do, and watching this kind of evolution of, of work tech and HR tech right in front of our eyes. So your early career, were you, um, was it more management? Was it coding? Was it consulting? How, how did you kind of come in, into the workplace? Yeah, you know, my first job that evolved into Flextronics was really, you know, I would probably best describe it today as essentially a CSM, right? We, we didn't call it CSMs back in the day, but I was working as a client success manager. You know, back then, I think we called it a program manager. I'm working with some of our largest companies and clients, you know, that ranged from everyone from HP to Apple. We were actually one of the first manufacturers of the iMac way back in the Apple transformation. Um, and got to watch that kind of firsthand. So, you know, as we like to call it today, a CSM, but I've been lucky enough to wear lots of different hats in, in my career, whether it's, you know, M&A, product strategy. I ran marketing for Cornerstone for about a year and a half period of time. So, you know, part of just my evolution as a person, as, as a manager, and uh, as an operator. And you've covered a lot of ground there in different roles, you know, and given a, a good view of business as well, you know, kind of looking at it from all these different angles. The one I'd really love to know more about is, so being an analyst, yeah, because a lot of people listening to the show will speak to analysts, but won't necessarily understand what an analyst really entails, you know? Was that a conscious career decision or, you know, how did you end up in that? And what would you recommend people do in terms of approaching analysts? Because they, they're probably going to have to speak to them more and more and more as they grow their businesses. Yeah, Andy, you know, well, one, I think the analyst role has changed quite a bit just in the last, you know, 10 to, to 15 years. To answer the first part of your question, you know, I kind of, you know, like a lot of things in my career, I guess I kind of stumbled upon it. I had just gotten married and, and my wife said, oh, I'd really like to move back east, back to, you know, where I grew up outside of Boston. And, you know, Boston is kind of the mecca for, for many of the analyst firms, IDC, Forrester. Yankee was one of the early pioneers back in the, in the day. And so I, you know, I just got connected through a gentleman named Phil First, who now runs his own analyst firm. And so it, it was kind of one of these things where I, I just stumbled in, into the world. And my goal when I got into the analyst world back in 2004, I just wanted to meet everyone. I wanted to show up at every event and be the first guy there and the last guy to leave. 
And through that evolution, I got to meet, you know, all of the relevant CEOs, CTOs in the market. So, you know, many people that you certainly know, Lars Dahlgaard, who was the founder and, and CEO of Success Factors, Dave Duffield. You know, in fact, I, I met Dave at the very early introduction and first the first launch of Workday back in, I guess that was 2007-ish. Certainly my boss for seven years at, at Cornerstone, the founder and CEO, Adam Miller. So my goal was is just to consume anything I could from networking to learning. So, re, you know, back in the day, you know, research was really around understanding markets, right? How big are markets? What are the TAMs? How do you think about market leaderships, market trends? And that was kind of the foundation for me, you know, as I went to Cornerstone, leading strategy and corporate development is kind of also looking three years or two or three years ahead, like what are the next emergent trends so we can start in investing them today and hopefully when they become you know, wider adopted or more widely adopted that we can be you know, at the forefront of those things. And now you know, running my own venture capital firm, a lot of that you know, work as an analyst is coming back to, to root. You know, I always joke with people, once an analyst, always an analyst, but I'm always thinking about how big is the market you know, lots of times you, you turn on CB and CBCs talking about, well, the TAM is unlimited, right? And I'm not necessarily a believer of that in all cases, but I always try to understand how big the opportunity is because as we're investing, you know, when I invest LP dollars, I want to think about like, what's that return on investment look for them over the years? And how do these markets need to shape up as we're making investments? That's really interesting. And we'll talk about your investments later on. I, you know, I'd love to get to that and get your ideas. I think back to my career, you know, so when I met Success Factors, which was probably about 2006, you know, relatively early, especially in terms of their international expansion, this whole talent management and L&D, these were all new terms, there were new things that were being kind of bolted onto like a pretty legacy old style core HR system. And then, you know, we've just had this explosion of tech since then, which has had to mirror, obviously, what's going on with working practices and the way people want to work and the way companies want to employ people, you know. From those early days forward, what, what do you think have been the kind of big, you know, you joined Yankee Group, probably similar sort of time. What are the big things you think have really shaped the HR tech scene in those years? And then I'd love to get to, you know, I'd love to follow up some questions just around what you're seeing now, because, you know, 2020 and 2021 have just been super defining years in terms of working practices. Yeah, and yeah, I'll try to keep it fairly simplistic. But, you know, I think the emergent market leaders at those times were really focused on a couple of things. One is this just embracement of SaaS and even more specifically, you know, multi-tenant SaaS. And I think that was a big differentiator for many of the companies. Salesforce has certainly proven that out. Workday has, has proven that out. And so just being able to support or embrace multi-tenant SaaS was a big definer. And that meant you can iterate faster. That meant you can deliver new products faster. It meant a lot of different things. But I think that was kind of the early foundation that kind of, you know, mid-2000s to kind of 2015, the defining SaaS companies were really multi-tenant at the core. They also were very much focused on the user. Now, yeah, I think it's very different today, that focus on the user, but really just a better user experience than your traditional SAP, PeopleSoft, or whatever that kind of on-premise solution was. And then the third is just making it more easy to adopt for that end buyer, where oftentimes for folks that just bought and implemented legacy technologies, it just it was kind of always a work in progress, right? And you never really got to that end state. And, and now I think we're in a much different world. So 
I think the, you know, that, that first generation of SaaS companies, I still have a fondness in my heart to many of them because, you know, many of the executives I, I met at those companies, they've gone on to be, you know, do much bigger and better things. But that to me was just kind of the first early learning curve of watching this evolution of markets from the technology changing to the business models changing. And I think, again, we're seeing a little bit of that today as well, right? And I think I'll say one last thing here. Yeah, I remember... I think it was, was you know, Anil Bouchery, who worked for at, at Workday, that talked about evolutions in kind of 15-year cycles. And I think we're at kind of the beginning stages of one of those kind of 15-year cycles again. I cast my mind back, you know, the those first-generation companies, things like the iPhone was only just arriving. Yeah. The iPad was kind of barely arriving. A lot of the social networks that we know today didn't exist. You know, AWS didn't exist. So there was a lot of, to make, SaaS appear as seamless and joined up as he did, there was still a lot of heavy lifting to do and things to work out because there wasn't many blueprints, I don't think, to go from. I think a lot of tech then was shaped by what was going on in consumer. You know, people wanted to kind of approach business tech the way that they approach tech at home. You know, hey, my tech's getting simpler and simpler at home. Why is my tech in the office not going the same way? Do you think that's a continuing trend, especially as we think about today, you know, the, the way people want to interact with tech? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure you remember this term fondly, Andy, the consumerization of the enterprise, right, which I, I, I never really loved. Um, but, you know, I, I think we're always striving to have more usable, better technology into the enterprise, right? And I, I don't think it ever gets solved. I think it's just constantly iterating. But I do think we are definitely seeing more consumerized applications, right? And maybe that's because we can use them on mobile devices now. I do think we're at the, also this beginning stages of much smarter, intelligent applications, right? And more personalized. So when I log into a system, it knows who I am. It knows what learning I may need to do or I may want to do. It knows a lot of things about me individually, either as an employee or even as a manager. And I think that's kind of the next evolution. So that, is that part of consumerization? I think so. And I think we will continue to see that shift. We do run into certainly issues around data privacy that I think are getting more complex. And so as maybe as applications get simpler behind the scenes, we get more complex around how we leverage or how do we manage data privacy in a whole unique way. I think this is certainly where Europe leads the way in defining some of those kind of regulations or, or requirements. But you know, as much as we make some of these applications simpler, they still do get more complex behind the scenes. And that becomes a bit challenging for both technology companies to how to manage to that privacy, but also to individuals on what information they want to they want to give up. I was on a call the other week and someone said they thought 2020 was five years of changing one year. Yeah, the way that <laughs> they kind of phrased it. What do you think the pandemic has either speeded up in terms of changes or is, has just made happen because of circumstances? Oh, Andy, I, yeah, I, I mean, I could probably talk a, a while about this. It's funny you say that, you know, when I first, when I launched my fund in 2019, I put together our, our operating manual. And one of the things I put there, and I think it was on page one, is, is we're going to see more change in the workforce in the next 10 years than we have in the last 50. Now, you know, this was pre-pandemic. And I think we, as you said, we've probably seen more change in the last year, or we will see more change in the next couple of years as we've seen in the last 50. But there's so many interesting changes that are happening, whether they're macro level changes, 
or technology changes. You know, we can all look back to the wide adoption of some of the tools that we've used over the last year, like Zoom and Slack and others. I don't want to, we've all seen that and not necessarily need to be repeated, but I, I think that we are seeing now different mandates of what we expect out of work. This whole blend of work life, I think, is becoming a real challenge for organizations because we fire up Zoom every day. We know how people live. We know what happens in the background with kids and, you know, animals and you have it. So we're renting a a whole new world of work in terms of what we expect out of it, how our employers and managers manage us as well as the tools that we're using. I think, you know, we're all kind of hardwired in, in many organizations and the tools that we use, but I think we've learned anything in the last year is we need much more agility and much more flexibility in the, in the tools and technologies that we're using. And even though we've adopted, you know, really great tools over the last 10 years, I think what we've seen is that, you know, many of them can't support the new way that we work. I'll say one last thing in one area I'm super fascinated with, and this is a, an interesting global trend is around this, evolution of what many are calling the extended workforce. And what I mean by extended workforce is we have kind of three types of workers today, right? We have your traditional employees. You've got your 1099s, you know, here in the U.S., which is essentially your freelancers. And now we've got the evolution of your gig workers, right? And gig workers are, you know, I think it's constantly changing in what we call it, you know, how we define a gig worker. But we don't have laws that support those three classifications of workers today. And so the, I think this is a interesting trend, whereas one, you know, this adoption and rise of freelancers is going to keep going, right? We actually saw a little bit of a dip in 2018-19. I think that was in part because unemployment was so low. But I think we're going to see that spike back up over the next couple of years, this rise of freelancers, this rise of gig workers to provide additional income and flexibility. And, you know, what a lot of people now call this rise of the creator economy, it's a VC term that everyone likes to use these days. But I think it's this ability to do multiple jobs because of your interests and and things that you care about. And so this is a fascinating trend. And so the way organizations manage that today, I don't think many organizations really know how to manage it or effectively manage it because it's so dynamic and so fluid. I think back to the, I'll say, traditional HR systems, the blueprint they use, which was there's an organization, it has a hierarchy, people sit in offices at desks, they have assets that they're using, yeah, they go on prescribed training courses, and uh, I'm being extreme here to make a point, but you know what I mean, yep. yeah, it's very yeah. rigid, yeah, and it feels like pretty much every part of that's been blown up now, yeah, both sides of the equation for the employee and the employer, and I think that loose coupling works on both sides now where people kind of want that. To your point, you know, I think... It used to be, hey, we have permanent employees and we may have contractors for specialist skills and we may have gig economy for more kind of blue collar, but all that's been blown up as well. Gig economy could be all the way up to a super specialist skill where someone just says, hey, I just provide the skill and this is all I want to do. From an employer, how much of that do you think they should be embracing now? I'm just curious as to, you know, what gaps do you think they've got and they should be thinking about? Yeah, Andy, that's an excellent question. And you know, one thing I think that we've seen over the last year is we all try to put everyone into a box, right? Or you know, everyone's going to go to, you know, every company's going to be work from home, right? Or everyone's going to be, you know, go into the office. And the fact of the matter is, every single company is going to have to approach the world probably a little bit differently, right? So it's not going to be a one size fits all to the workforce going forward. To answer your question, I think part of what organizations should be doing now is looking forward a couple of years and figuring out what do you want your organizations to start to look like in the the next couple of years? And I think a lot of companies are already doing that work and talking about it. 
And then, you know, start from there and roll backwards to say, okay, what do we need to do in terms of changing our performance management process, our compensation management process, our systems that we're using today? Because, you know, to your point, you know, when I was at, at Cornerstone and I would go to our headquarters in Santa Monica, and any given day you'd walk in the headquarters and you'd see accountants from PwC in the office. You would see, you know, overflow of lawyers that we would have from time to time because of certain periods of quarters. You'd see freelancers that we're using in the marketing department. And I didn't know who these people were, but I, you know, I could recognize faces all of the time. And I think that's the new shape of the workforce is that maybe we're not going to see them in physical locations, but certainly we'd like to know, you know, who is in that building. Because if you fast forward the next couple of years, we've got skills that are at all the organization. We just don't know where they exist, right? They could be employees, they could be freelancers, they could be, you know, gig workers. And I think that's kind of the next evolution of the workforce is trying to get smart on who our workforce really is. Um, you know, back in my consulting days, we always used to go into enterprises and say, LinkedIn knows more about your employees than you do. And the fact of the matter is that was kind of a joke 15 years ago in the consulting days, but it's still somewhat fact, right? And so with this new n- new workforce where you've got folks that aren't wearing the quote unquote badge of your organization, we should still know who these employers are, what skill sets they have, what knowledge they have, because we can't find them anymore. We can't find, you know, that skilled workforce that we're going to need in, in the future. And, and so we have to be able to leverage it wherever we can. And, and most oftentimes it's sitting in the organization. We just don't know it. Yeah. And I think skills, skills and competences are messy. You know, I look back and I see a lot of companies that try to kind of put them into clean kind of boxes as to who's got what, where, when. But it doesn't always work like that, as you all know better than me. One of the things I get asked a lot though now is around employee well-being and mental health now. Yeah. So a lot of it is how much should I do as an employer about this and should I prescribe versus advise? And then kind of how do I ensure that I'm connected to my workforce and I actually understand what they're going through? And I think, you know, we're by the way, in the UK here, I'm so I'm sat in the UK, this week marks a year since we were first advised to work from home. So that's a long time for a lot of employees, you know, where they're sat disconnected from, you know, they're only seeing people through a screen typically, and they have done for maybe a year. And I know you've looked at this and it's a kind of passion of yours. How are you thinking about that whole area? Because I think this is a very rapidly evolving kind of topic for organizations right now. Yeah, this is a super interesting topic for me personally. It actually started when I read a book from Jeffrey Pfeffer called Dying for a Paycheck. This is about a three-year-old book now, so pre-pandemic. And what he wrote about in that book was essentially that stress was one of the leading causes of death in America. I think he said it was the fifth leading cause of death in America next to diseases like cancer and otherwise. And, you know, there's there's a bit of math behind that. But I guess the core of what he was getting at is, is that mental wellness was becoming a big issue within corporations. And I think we've only just put more gas on the fire over the last year with with the pandemic because of all these dynamics of work from home and, you know, added, you know, stress with your family life and being locked into a house with not much relief. So it's an area that I have been super fascinated with. And I think it's a somewhat of a complex issue, right? I think what we've seen is a lot of technology companies over the last few years have been more focused on the treatment side. So how do we just provide support to our employees? And... I think that's an important first step. I also think the next step is helping train our managers and training our executives on what should we be watching? How should we be asking the questions? What do we need to be learning about our employees so we can try to solve some of these issues if we start to see some of that early diagnosis of wellness issues? 
And I think the third area that I'm probably most fascinated with is more on the prevention side. So we talk about treatment and training. I think prevention is a really interesting one where we have a lot of insights into our employees just by the tools that they're using every single day email and Slack, there's a lot of knowledge and insights we can get out of those tools, right? And how they communicate, the language that's being used, the linguistics that flows through those systems. And if we can start to diagnose that just through everyday communications that are happening, that is an important first step. And we've certainly made an investment in this area, super early days, but I think we should be focused a little bit more on the prevention side because we have the tools and technologies to be able to do it. In line that question, though, there's a lot of, as I mentioned earlier, privacy concerns. What do you want to share or what do you want you know, managers to know if you aren't sharing individually, right? And so these systems you know, run the risk, and, and Microsoft ran into some of these issues with some of the technology they were using a couple of years ago. So privacy is something in this wellness area that we have to be very careful on how do we manage that privacy of giving information to employees without the employee's consent with scrolling through emails and, and messages. But, you know, I think we will continue to see issues with, with mental wellness in part because there's still just lots of uncertainty in work, lots of uncertainty in the world, and I'm not sure we're going to solve it at least this year and even going into next year. That's really interesting. And, and one of the terms that I saw used a lot back in the day was kind of in the flow of work, which is what can you learn about your employees and what can they learn about you kind of just by engaging them where they are, you know, rather than pull them off to say, hey, go to this application or do this or fill in this piece of data. It's kind of like wherever they are. How do you think, especially in this world where we're using, you mentioned the Zooms and the Teams and whatever it may be, you know, is there a chance to kind of be in that flow of work, you think, to kind of engage with employees in a different way? Because I don't think you can mandate things around mental health. You need to kind of proactively just try and get ahead of it is just my, my thinking. Are you seeing any unique or innovative ways that people are doing this or any thoughts on what's out there? One of the thesis, Andy, in our fund is around software for the people is, is the way I call it, right? And what that means is, you know, a lot of the power of technology is shifting from the corporation to the employee. And in doing so, what that means is, is you know, when I fire up an application, it has to be useful for me as an individual. And so, you know, I'll bring it back to the wellness example where, if I could see through a technology telling me how I communicate and basically telling me if I'm redlining in my wellness, then that should be personally to me. And then I, I should be able to determine who else has access to that data if I want to open it up. So that's just one small example. I think what we're doing in this kind of next generation of SaaS is leveraging data, but it's also, I think, trying to answer the what's in it for me for the employee, right? What's in it for me if I complete a performance review? What's in it for me if I take this training course? And that is a big shift that, that is certainly underway right now. But I don't think we've necessarily done that with a lot of the existing technologies within the enterprise is providing someone to be able to answer that question of what's in it for me. I mean, you know, I came from, from Cornerstone, which is the leader in, in enterprise learning. And most times learning today still is very much like take this course and complete it by this date because you need to be in compliance. But the fact of the matter is, is that there may be things that I care about that because I want to develop my career, I want to progress in my career. And so what courses should I be taking to help me progress in my career? You know, the systems are getting smarter and we've got a lot of data that says, hey, if I took this course, maybe I should take that course. Or if I knew this colleague was able to get a promotion because of the courses they've taken, maybe I want to take those same courses. So 
we're at the early days of being able to answer that what's in it for me for the employees. But that to me is is where a lot of the technology companies that I look at today, I think they have to be able to answer that question. Like, why is this important for an employee and manager? Because we've seen this evolution of product-led growth, right? And we're going to continue to see that. And the more ability that you can give tools to employees and they're actually going to use, then is better for certainly the vendor and, and hopefully better for the employer. So I'm hearing the training courses are kind of off the charts right now. I don't know if I've seen numbers, but people are sat at home. So they're like, hey, I'll go get myself trained. I mean, this is an area you know super well. How is learning and development changing? What, what do you see next for that? Especially now people are sat at home and doing rather than mandated courses like, hey, I'm just going to go and learn some new skills. Do you see big changes ahead for that industry? I do. I, I'm mixed on this where I think there's a lot of myths out there of what training has done over the last year. I, I don't believe that because people are home, they're going off and taking, you know, hours long training courses. I certainly haven't. You know, I've got three kids and a dog and, you know, other things that are that are keeping me busy here. So I don't necessarily buy into that belief that, you know, people have now spare time and they're going to go take training courses. But what I do believe is, is that training is becoming more accessible. So that's certainly a good thing. I mean, we just saw the, the publishing of the Coursera S1, which came out, I think, a, a week ago. Coursera was one of the early pioneers of this concept called the MOOCs, the Massive Open Online Courses. So the good news is, is training is more accessible than it ever has been. I do think, though, that we haven't cracked the nut on both the personalization side. So why should I take the course? And how am I going to do it in a way that kind of comes, like you said earlier, in the, in the flow of work? So I think there's a lot more work that we can be doing there. And part of that is determining what is the training for, right? I mean, are you taking a course to get a certification or degree that will then help, you know, put that on your CV so that you can go market yourself for your next best job? Or are you taking training because you want that 15 minute, you know, nugget of information that's going to help you for your next meeting? So we kind of lump training all together and learning all together where it's very unique based off of, you know, are you training for knowledge or are you training for skill? And that's what we we haven't necessarily figured out. What are the best ways to do that? Because I think, you know, a little promotional here, but we, we invested in a company that's doing text-based learning. It's super fascinating because you get it when you want in a format that you use every single day. And the idea was, is because we want people to actually use training, right? Most training, you know, if you look at Coursera and they didn't publish this in their S1, but prior to pandemic, about 20% of people that actually started a course completed a course. So there's just a huge drop off in, in learning engagement because either the courses are too long, you lose interest. But, you know, in this text-based model, I'm super fascinated because their completion rates are at like 90%. So when people actually get the course, on a text message, they actually take the course and you can make it much more engaging and much user friendly and much more modern. So that was a long response to your question, Andy, but I think we're, we are in another midst of, of change in learning and development because it should be more accessible and we should be enabling our employees to find more time to train themselves. Got it. So let's turn to Acadian then, because in all these twists and turns in your career, you're now an investor. <laughs> which I'm sure is a whole new different stress, or maybe it's more stress, I don't know. <laughs> um, and you're a sole GP. You are sat there kind of with decisions to make and you're looking at the market. And I often get asked the question, is knowing about a market a kind of plus or a negative? <laughs> and often people come along and they reinvent markets completely. And I'm just curious, you know, why be an investor? And what was the motivation for that? And then 
I'm going to call it your investment thesis, and maybe that's not fair, but just kind of how you shape the fund and what is it you want to go find? Yeah, let me, uh, I'll try to take this in a, a couple of directions. I got interested in venture about a decade ago, and it, it was when I joined Cornerstone back in 2011. We had two really interesting VCs on our board. One was Byron Dieter from Bessemer Venture Partners, and the other was Rob Ward from Meritech. And I always like to tell them they're mentors, although, you know, it was a very different type of mentoring relationship where I just sat back and learned from them. I would sit back in board meetings and I would watch them and watch them interact. And I, I saw Byron Dieter on, on CNBC today and I, you know, I learned from him watching him on, on CNBC. So I reached out to them recently to say, you know, you may not know this or not, but you've been an important mentor just for me being able to observe your career and how you've progressed and, you know, how you, you've made your funds top performers. And that's been important for me. So that was kind of my first entree into learning venture was from the VCs that I would just watch, whether it was in the boardroom or otherwise. And then one of the things that we decided to do at Cornerstone is we launched a corporate venture fund in 2014 to 15. That was my first entree into actually writing checks. And it was the one part about the job that I love, but I always used to joke it was like kind of our Google 20% time because you know, our investors really cared about what we were going to do next quarter, not venture bets that were going to mature in seven, eight, 10 years. But you know, why I, I launched the fund was really based on my days of corporate venture at, at Cornerstone, where I would get the question, and hopefully I'll bring this back full circle here, Andy, but I would get the question of who are the VCs that really understand this market, work tech, HR tech. And I could never come up with a single or like, oh, you need to talk to this person or go talk to this firm. And not to say that there aren't great venture investors out there, but what I saw is I thought there was a unique opportunity to create a specialized fund in HR tech and, and work tech. Now to answer your question, I mean, is it a benefit or is it a, is it a weakness to have that market knowledge? And I, I certainly hope and expect that it's a benefit Part of this is, you know, because we watch a lot of those first generation and, and second generation SaaS companies and certainly a cornerstone, you know, I learned by lots of mistakes that we made. But one of the, you know, uniquenesses for our fund is I like to call it kind of a collective of operators and builders. So we've got a, a good viewpoint of the evolution of what happened at Success Factors and Workday and Zoom based off of the many DLPs that are into our fund. And so I certainly hope and expect that that's a benefit because I actually am a firm believer that having a historical knowledge of markets is very, very important. If you know what, what happened with PeopleSoft and with SuccessFactors and with Workday and all these companies, it gives you a good viewpoint of what could happen in the future or you know how you need to look at the world maybe a little bit differently. And so you know, we are super specialized as a fund. We're, we're very proud of that. And I would hope that it's a benefit to our, our portfolio companies. The other thing, and I'll, I'll shut up here, but you know, I think that market specialization is helpful because we don't do deals all by ourselves, right? We partner with the notions of the world or desire to partner with the notions of the world and other VCs. So we would expect that we are highly complementary to really great VCs like Notion and others that have a different level of expertise, maybe not necessarily domain expertise, but have other areas of expertise that can complement us, but also be valuable from a full stack of your, your investors that will add value to those portfolio companies. Someone was, once asked me and said, you know, what is the history of tech? <laughs> and I would say abstraction. We started with bare metal and then we started with BIOS and then we put an interpreter on top of that. And then now we are all the way up to, you know, AI assistance, voice operated. Yeah. And I look at business models and people say, what's the history of business models? And I, and I would say centralized, decentralized. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're in this kind of best of breed decentralized mode at the moment, you know, do you think there's going to be any, because I, I think about 
where we are today, you know, there are there are core HR systems, and then there's a number of best of breeds around them. And I'll, I'll laugh about my example is, you know, I would um, I go visit a company, I'd say, which ATS do you use? And their answer would be all of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? There isn't one that satisfies everything we need. And I used to think, does that mean that we're in this permanently fragmented kind of era, you know, where you've got a core and you've got everything else fragmented? But do you think there are big new markets that are going to be built in HR tech that we just haven't seen yet that are part of some of these trends that we're seeing, you know, or is it continuations of existing markets? How do you think about it? I think about it, I guess, in both of those, which is I think we're going to see disruption in, in existing categories like learning, for example, and we're going to see new markets being created. I certainly wish I knew what those are going to be um, and my crystal ball was working, but you know, we invest both with the viewpoint of, of looking at categories and seeing what categories may be disrupted. And part of that's looking at, you know, market size and market trends. And part of that is looking at some of these areas where it's like, I think there's an opportunity there. Maybe these guys can be a category creator, although category creation is extremely hard and sometimes we'll make bets there as well. So I, I agree with overall what you said was we are seeing this kind of unbundling, not just in HR tech software, but I think more broadly in wider enterprise software. Part of that is because the ability to open APIs, create, you know, platforms to be extensible more than we've ever seen them. And part of it is, is organizations just, you know, they always, no buyer is alike, right? And some want that one throat to choke and some don't want that one choke to throat. The fact of the matter is the markets are plenty big for many companies to be very, very successful. But I do think we are in a a current time of, of unbundling of software because, you know, we're seeing a lot of innovation that's happening, you know, in early stage venture markets. And we're seeing customers demand of their vendors that they need to be much more open and much more willing to, to integrate because of the desire to have that best of breed solution. Ask me that question in four years and I'll tell you, we'll probably back into a centralized phase, right? There's one vendor that's now kind of, you know, either rolling up or, or building everything. But as you said, these kind of ebb and flow. Yeah. And, you know, there's tech trends that come along. The big one, obviously, that we're just rolling through now is AI and machine learning. And I'll, I'll give you an example of this. So I was looking the other day, doing a bit of prep to speak to you about 10 HR jobs that don't exist today that will exist in the future. And one was AI talent coordinator. And I stared at that. And I'm like, AI talent, what is that? And I realized that, is that kind of like, is AI augmenting? Are you seeing tech trends start to shape a little bit, kind of the changing nature of the HR function as well? I think we're seeing HR organizations realizing one is they have a lot of data that just goes unused, unleveraged. And two is we've got this great, you know, AI and, and machine learning capabilities now that we probably didn't have five years ago. And so you combine those two things and we've got a tremendous amount of power of data that can be leverageable or leveraged now. I don't think a lot of organizations know what or how to do that. And part of this is maybe they just don't know the right questions that they need to be asking just yet. And so, you know, I think about this next evolution, you know, we saw kind of the first iteration of SaaS, and then we've seen this kind of evolution of early adoption of AI. But to me, the leaders of the next 10 years are really going to have this understanding of data, how to capture data and how to use the data, whether that's in an enterprise application or whether that's providing those capabilities to an HR executive so they can go in and use them themselves. But AI is one of these terms that has certainly been overblown over the last three or four years. And I still don't think we've seen much progress in the last two years. Right? I think we're still kind of dabbling in some interesting ideas and, and interesting ways to use it. But I don't think we've harnessed the full capabilities just yet. 
And, and we've, we've certainly had some missteps in, in HR that concern those buyers on widely embracing AI, right? So what is the bias? Because we're dealing with people here and, and bias can certainly have a big impact on, on an individual and their careers and hiring decisions and the like. So we have to be very careful, but we're still very much early days in, in harnessing all this data and using the, the power of machine learning in HR today. And you know, you were talking about the gig economy and temp labor and contract labor and permanent employees and retired employees. The whole find talent, get talent, retain talent, development talent, that whole life cycle, we used to think of it as a very traditional kind of, hey, we've got a process, we put people in the process, we interview them and they kind of come out the other end with the person we want. Do you think that model is going to blow up in terms of, you know, talent could be anywhere. It could be in your organization, it could be out of your organization, it could be in your country, it could be out of your country. You know, I just look at this and I think, wow, all of a sudden the equation's changed for organizations. Yeah, I think it already has blown up, but I don't think we know how to put the pieces back together just yet, if that makes any sense, right? Which is, you yeah. know, we, we have had all these processes, right? I mean, you know, we've all gone through annual performance reviews and we've all gone through different cycles of processes. And, you know, many of them are probably unbeloved to most employees, myself probably included. But a big focus over the last couple of years has been around skills, right? Oh, so we need to upskill, reskill. And I think that's still, you know, a buzzwordy type of term, but I do think that we still don't have a harness on how to manage skills, how to build skills, because we've all seen this in, in corporations, right? You know, someone leaves the organization and what do you do? You fire up the job rack, you post out the job and you hope to get all these inbound candidates when nine times out of 10, you have probably a good enough or better candidate in your four walls. You just didn't know it. Or you had someone that you knew you could develop probably relatively rapidly, but you didn't know how to, how to do that either. So I think the, the ingredients are there. We just haven't put them all together just yet. And that's not to say that the companies aren't, aren't doing things. I think there's a lot of work that's happening right now to figure out, like, how do we need to reskill? How do we need to upskill? I think in Europe, it's a very different viewpoint than it is in the States because we have at-will employment in the States. So sometimes, you know, workers in many cases are just disposable. You have to look at it a little bit differently globally, and that presents another challenge in itself. But I do think that we are in an interesting stage where, you know, we don't have a gap in technology. We don't have a gap in a lot of these areas. It's more of a gap on how do we want to harness all of these things together, technologies, new applications, you know, exploring new products to get to where we want to be. And, and I would hope that, you know, if we've learned anything in the last year, that we should be doing much more experimentation, particularly in HR tech and, and work tech, because I think what we've saw in the last year is a lot of companies just, you know, no one was really prepared for a pandemic. But what we did see is a lot of companies that were just stuck. They didn't know what to do because their technology wasn't able to support the rapid changes that happened in the organization, right? The unemployment went from three and a half percent to 14 percent overnight. You know, we didn't know what to do in, in that short period of time. And now we don't know what to do to build the organization of the future. I think also people expect different things from their employees now in terms of giving their time, companies' money, shares, you know, different pledges around kind of how, how we're going to give back to the community, how we're going to give back to people. And not this overtly, hey, we're beholden to the shareholders only, but we're actually beholden to a lot more than that, you know. And I feel this accelerating as well. And I interview people, of course, for different positions. And I get asked this all the time now. What does your company do for the community? What does it do for local charities? How does it give back to the tech community? What do you do for open source? You know, all these sort of things. 
do you look at it in, in the companies that you're looking to invest in and say, you should be thinking like that? But do you also look at it in terms of your LPs and employees and say, hey, this is this is what we should expect from companies now? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, Andy. And I think the short answer is yes. We are definitely seeing this move towards more stakeholder capitalism as I think, you know, the World Economic Forum and, you know, CEOs like Mark Benioff define it. And so we will continue to see that. I am a huge advocate. You know, part of what we did when we started the fund is we signed the 1% pledge like many startups do, of which 1% of our profits, essentially our carry goes towards a foundation that we set up. And we did that for two reasons. One is just something that I care about personally, because I've got young children and I think it's important, you know, for them from just learning how to give back. But secondly, is it something that we try to infuse in all of our companies? And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to make an investment or we're not going to make an investment because they don't have some sort of viewpoint on stakeholder capitalism. But it's something that, you know, we want to be able to say, hey, this is what we do. So they can start thinking about it in the early days of formation of their company, right? It doesn't necessarily be on day one or even, you know, year three. But you can point back to a lot of successful companies, you know, Salesforce and Twilio and many others that have embraced this concept have been hugely successful in part because it was a core element of of their foundation. So I definitely think that's a movement that is not going the other direction. The way I like to articulate our fund is we're super specialized. We're a collective of operator and builders. And you know, although we're not an impact fund, we're an impact investors. And so I try to think about that within every investment that we make. And that you know, hopefully when our fund becomes very successful, you know, we'll have options to put that into our foundation and do good with it. But it's also a way to, to infuse that kind of mentality or, or foundation into the earliest formations of, of companies. You, know, you mentioned this maybe tangentially as well as around kind of diversity and inclusion. I think that's something that's very important especially in this day and age, is something I think about every single day. And, you know, we're not where we want to be as a fund in terms of funding entrepreneurs of, of diverse backgrounds. It's going to be a journey for us, but it's something I think about every single day, both from an investment perspective, as well as an LP perspective. And it's something I, I, I track and, you know, for us, it's going to be a journey, but I think you have to look at all these things collectively. And that's what we're trying to do is look at what could we be doing to give back what could we be doing to influence our companies? And then how could we be looking at this from a data to understanding that we're evolving our fund where we want it to be? That's great. I think that's good advice for people who are thinking of putting funds together as well, you know, in terms of how to think about that. Hey, so last question. I always like to ask this at the end. Who do you admire? You've mentioned some people that you admire in terms of, you know, that were influential in your choice of VC career. But companies, emerging companies, other people, who do you look out there and go, wow, they're they're really doing it well. You know, I like what they're doing. It's a long list and I'll probably keep it to a couple of those. I mean, I have a lot of mentors in, in my career, you know, so folks like Adam Miller, who was the founder and CEO of Cornerstone has been a mentor of mine, both directly and indirectly. Uh, he's become an LP in the fund. We're you know now investing in his next company. So all these things kind of work together, but um, he's been an important mentor for me. I look at folks like Mark Benioff, who I just think has been a great pioneer of our industry, but also the things that he does philanthropically are just fantastic. I look at a lot of VCs and and you know try to emulate a lot of things of what they've done well. That's a long list, but I mentioned one earlier, Byron Dieter's certainly been one that I just have watched both you know in a boardroom and you know on CNBC. And as a craft, I look at someone like him and say, hey, he's done a lot of things right. So those are a handful. There's many more. I mean, you know. My father's been hugely influential to me in just understanding, you know, put your head down and go to work. 
and you got to put the work in. It's something I try to teach my kids as well is whatever you want to do, you got to you got to put the work in because nothing comes easy. I think there's a lot of truth to the saying, the harder you work, the luckier you get. That's right. Make your luck. <laughs> well, Jason, thank you. I really appreciate the time. I really appreciate the insights. I think we covered a lot of ground there. And, and like I said, I, I thought it'd be great to chat to you because you've had so many different kind of iterations and twists and turns in your career. And it's all kind of built to this. And let me say, you know, continue success in what you're doing. And I'd love to catch up, you know, some of those things that we just talked about. You said, come back in a couple of years. Maybe we'll do that and find out whether they really came true. But thank you. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Andy, for having me. 